Okay. At the heart of the LGBTQ plus movement is the question of identity. Who am I? Who am I really inside? What is the real me? And am I truly free to live out who I am to my full potential? That lies at the very heart of the LGBTQ plus movement. Now, in the more distant past, if you were gay or uh, transgender, that would be seen as a lifestyle choice. You had made the choice to dress in the clothes of another gender or to be attracted to people of the same sex. But a lot of the, the change that's taken place in the last 20 or 30 years has been because LGBT people have shared their experiences. And one thing that comes out again and again is that they do not choose to feel the way they feel. It's deeper than a lifestyle choice. Now, I'm not gay, but that's the testimony of my gay friends and people who have written about their experiences. I've got a few for you here. I'm going to quote them at length, so stick with me. Ruth says, I was only about three when I first remember being aware that I was attracted to other girls. So it was hard to remember how I felt because I suppose it just felt quite normal and natural because it's what I grew up with. It wasn't until I started to realize that this wasn't the ordinary way of things that it probably started to cause me problems. I suppose I realized I was different when I was at secondary school, around 13 or 14, when people were starting to get boyfriends and things like that. I think that was probably when I thought, this isn't just a phase I was going through or a normal stage of my development, but that in actual fact, I seemed to be quite different from the other people and that seemed to be a lasting thing. Now, occasionally those unchosen feelings are accompanied by lifestyle choices. And so this book is absolutely excellent. It's written by Rebecca McLaughlin, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Rebecca is a Christian, and she writes about her experience and the experience of a friend called Rachel. She says a little bit about Rachel, and then she says this. Our stories of same-sex attraction are as different as our stories of faith. Mine is the story of a girl who found herself from childhood falling in love with older, inaccessible girls, but hoped and prayed she would grow out of it, a dream that finally died in grad school. It's a story of silence and quiet loss, as my heart got stuck to people who could not want me back. It's a story of never touching another woman in a sexual way, but always longing for more intimacy, sometimes more than I knew I could have. And like many Christians of my generation who felt drawn to those of their own sex, it's a story of carrying the burdens of legitimate needs and complex desires and a cavernous fear that disclosing my feelings would ruin my friendships. Rachel's story is the opposite. It's a story of growing up without a Christian framework and realizing at 15 that she was drawn to a beautiful senior girl. It's a story of pursuing and seducing that girl and establishing an intimate, ongoing, open relationship. It's a story of sleeping with many other supposedly straight women, even developing a conquest mentality and of despising Christians for being stupid and easily lured into bed. But then it's a story of reading her way into Yale, 
being left by her high school girlfriend, plunging into existential angst, stealing a book called Mere Christianity from a lapsed Catholic friend, and being overpowered by the gospel of Jesus. Those are two very different lifestyles, but they both have the unchosen underlying feelings of same-sex attraction. So what I'm getting at is that the feeling itself is not a choice. It's not a lifestyle choice. Lifestyle choices develop out of something deeper, an identity, which is why the whole uh, movement comes down to a question of identity. Now, the LGBT uh, Q plus identity is particularly strong. You only need to turn on your TV to see that. And I'm going to give us three reasons why the movement is so strong, why it has such a strong identity. And I'm going to tell you in advance why I'm going to give you those three reasons. I'm going to give you those three reasons so that we can sympathize with the strength of that, that sense of identity. Here's the first reason. Overcoming fear and shame. Many LGBT people have to overcome an acute sense of fear and shame when they face up to how they feel and when they tell others about how they feel. Here's what some of them say. Matthew says, My dad would later tell me that the day I came out to him was the worst day of his life. His sister had passed away the year before, his father years earlier. But the day I said, Dad, I'm gay, was the worst day of his life. To his credit, though, he didn't tell me that at the time. Obviously, to have a parent disapprove of you is an extremely painful experience. Laura says, firstly, I think I was surprised and kind of shocked, and I just really felt ashamed. A huge sense of shame. But, you know, at the same time, it was kind of exciting. But I wouldn't allow myself to think too hard on it. Simon says, uh, or this is written about Simon, as Simon's friends are becoming more and more interested in their, in their female classmates, Simon finds that he is experiencing these same feelings towards one or two of his male mates and still has no interest in girls. He knows that this makes him different. And to feel different at this age is horrible. He wants to be like his friends. He feels ashamed and disgusted with himself initially. So the LGBT identity is strong because all of these people have overcome fear and shame. Why pride? Because pride is the opposite of shame. The second reason is that when you meet people who have experienced the same thing as you, it feels good to stand together. When I was in, uh, living in Guernsey a few years ago, that. There are only about 60,000 people in Guernsey, and of those, probably about 70 windsurf, and I was one of those 70. And I was on holiday in Austria, sitting on a coach coming down a mountain, and I happened to sit next to somebody from Guernsey who was also a windsurfer. So, you know, out of the 70 people on a tiny island, we were there in a foreign country, we just happened to sit next to each other. Now, obviously, we hit it off straight away, and we got chatting, and we kept in touch afterwards. Because when you meet someone who shares your way of seeing things and shares interests and experiences, you stick together. So it's not hard to imagine that when two LGBT people meet, they stick together. 
They have common ground and a mutual understanding. And they accept each other, so they stick together. And that's particularly important to them when a lot of people around them will disapprove of them or bully them. So in my reading, a couple of times, gay or trans people have said things like, I walked into a gay bar and immediately I felt at home. And I can understand why they would say that. Because they walk into a gay bar and they're not going to be bullied. They're not going to be judged. They're going to feel at home. They're going to be with people who think the same way. Feels good to stand together. And thirdly, of course, the LGBT movement has been championed by the media, which again strengthens that sense of identity. Imagine if there were as many, uh, let's just take it back to, here we go. Imagine if uh, there were that many programs about the Christian faith, positively endorsing the Christian faith on, on the media. Um, it would boost our sense of identity, wouldn't it? Be a good feeling. So this championed by the media gives a strong sense of identity. Now, a strong sense of identity is important to everyone. Um, if you know who you are and you're comfortable with who you are, that gives you security and confidence. If you have security and confidence, you'll go out into life and you'll be prepared to take risks. If you don't have security and confidence, then life will be painful and difficult. You'll be second-guessing every move you make. You'll be worrying about what other people think. And so a strong sense of identity is important. And what I'm going to do is going to give us all a basic overview of the Bible's teaching about identity in four points, because I want to show you how much confidence and security it gives when we have a biblical picture of who we are. So here we go. First, humans are awesome, in the words of so many YouTube videos. Humans are awesome. I've probably got an example to show you, actually. This is why I had this text at the beginning. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Come straight out of the Bible. The word fearfully, the second being there, to stand in awe. I am awesomely made. Humans are awesome. Come straight out of the Bible. Now, I'm hoping that um, somewhere around here is a video. If you haven't seen Humans Are Awesome videos, this is the sort of thing that you might be watching on YouTube. All 35 minutes of it. All right, that's enough of that. Okay, awesome. So, you've got these videos, Humans Are Awesome, and you'll get stuff like that, and somebody riding a BMX up a huge jump and stuff like that. So, people can do amazing things. That's the first thing. But when it comes to how amazing human beings are, the Bible doesn't stop there. It also says people are made for relationships. So friends, family, romance, that's all part of God's design. And loneliness is when we crave to get back to God's good design for us. Another way, humans are awesome. We're relational people. We're given a purpose, the Bible also says. We're made in God's image. Which means two things. First of all, it means we resemble God in a number of ways. I did a talk uh, at the day away to the youth about some of the different ways that we resemble God. And one of those is creativity. We're very creative, and that resembles God because he's very creative. So uh, here's one example that I, I gave. We create meaning out of nothing. Um, when God created the light, he said, let there be light, and there was light, and he called the light... Ah, oh, so he didn't call the light light. He gave it a meaning. 
And we do the same thing. Here we go. I've got one of these COVID tests here. And what you see here is a little circle of air. But fortunately, someone's pointed, put an arrow pointing to it, and it says extraction tube holder. So somebody has given a circle of air meaning. That circle is nothing. It's just a piece of card with a hole in it. But we have given it meaning. We do the same things that God does. We give things meaning. Um, God uh, brings order out of chaos. We do that from time to time, sometimes the other way around. God creates just because he wants to and he likes the way it looks. You look at all the variety around the world. And so do we. It's that sort of thing. So we resemble God in certain ways, creativity being one of them. And secondly, being made in God's image means that we represent God on earth. Again, uh, so Becky mentioned this actually. Um, In the ancient Near East, you'd have a king who was ruling, say I'm the king over here, and I'm ruling lots of foreign lands. And the problem is I can only be in one place at any one time. So I set up for myself an image. Here we go. So this is a statue of me over here. And the statue represents my authority. So whilst I'm absent from that place, my authority is there in that place. And so being made in God's image means that God, although he's not technically absent, has delegated authority to us on earth. We're given a purpose. And we're also given a meaning. God created people because that was his supreme act of love. Revelation 4.11, you're worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they are created and have their being. It's just because God wanted to create us that he did. Our meaning comes from outside the universe. Here we go. This fish is just a piece of scrap wood, but it has a lot of meaning to me because my granddad carved it. And it's a bit like, you know, each one of us in this room, (laughs) the Bible says we're made out of dust, but it also says we have immense value to our creator because he made us. I'm not going to let this go anywhere out of my sight because I like it. And that's the same God with us. The wonderful thing is that that identity is given to every single one of us by God. And we don't need to find it. We don't need to discover it. We don't need to create it. We just have it because we're people. But the second thing is that we're broken. Something's gone wrong. And obviously the evil in the world is enough to tell us that. Not everything is as it should be. But the Bible does put words to that. It gives us an explanation. It says, for example, in Psalm 14, verse 3, there is no one who does good, not even one. So we can all relate to Michael Jackson's words from man in the mirror, or not man, if you're not a man. Oh, sorry. relate to that, can't we? I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make the change. And what he's saying there that we will all agree with 
is that the problem is not just out there, the problem is in here as well. But it's more than just we do things wrong. We're, the Bible also talks about everything and everyone being frustrated and decaying, being broken and in pain. And so just looking at ourselves and making a change will never fix it. And this is where Michael comes undone. Now, arguably, perhaps he should have looked at his life and made a few more changes. But, you know, that would be a bit self-righteous of us to point the finger at him when we've got a whole load of our own changes that need to be made. And for Michael, you can see this particularly clearly. The brokenness didn't just express itself in doing wrong things. It expressed, it, it expressed itself in pain and loneliness and frustration and unbearable sadness, hopelessness, as well as more negative feelings that we all have, that we have little control over. Bitterness, envy, greed, so on. And you, just, you can't just take a look at yourself and make a change, can you? So our identity, all of our identity is awesome, but broken. And it's very liberating to acknowledge that. Because it gives us permission not to be, I'm fine, thanks. Someone asks you, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Well, now we've got permission to not be fine because the Bible says we're broken. But that brings us on to our third point about identity. And I've put a question mark after it. Restored, question mark. We identify ourselves in lots of ways. Might say, you know, I'm British or whatever. But in all those ways, we're still awesome and broken. So as a British person, I am both awesome and broken. If you're a nurse, you're both an awesome and broken nurse. Um, I'm a woman, I'm also uh, awesome and broken. Or you might say, I'm gay. As a gay person, you're awesome and broken. I'm a guitarist, awesome and broken guitarist. In all of those other identities, nurse, British, woman, gay, straight, guitarist, whatever it might be, just because you are human, you are both awesome and broken. But there is one identity you can have which deals with the brokenness, and that is to be reconciled to God, to be reunited with your creator. Now, the Bible calls that being in Christ. That is the name of this identity. And there's no easy way to explain what it means to be in Christ, except to say that our life, our death, and our new identity is entirely tied up with his life, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus came and he had compassion on all the people. He came to give us life to the full. He came to give us true peace, security, and freedom. And so Paul, as an ambassador for Jesus in his time, and me as an ambassador for Jesus in our time, could say this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
The big problem in this world is a broken relationship, and I know many of you know this, between us and God. And true identity for all of us is found in restoring that relationship. And true love is how we get there. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, which is exactly what he did when he died on the cross, to reconcile us to God. So we can't fix our own brokenness, but we can be restored by Christ. And the one final part of our identity that I want to draw to your attention is this. We are waiting. There's a real sense in which you can be reconciled to God now, and that will make a real difference to your identity. When a person is in Christ, that identifies them, and the old is taken away. Their brokenness, the darkness inside inside them is taken away. But we still feel guilt and shame and pain because we're waiting for our reconciliation to God to be complete. So here's what will happen when it is in Revelation 21. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So I want to finish this first half by asking a question. How much hope for the future does your identity give you? God is offering an identity like no other. It goes far beyond the perfect romance. It goes far beyond finding the perfect job. It goes far beyond finding happiness. It helps us to make sense of all of life, both the good times and the bad. This identity in Christ means that we believe even the bad times are working together for good that we're waiting for. And when this creation comes to an end, the identity of being in Christ means that we will be renewed. The brokenness will be fixed, the darkness will be gone, and we'll be living in an earth where there is no more pain and no more crying, no more shame, no more death. So the Christian message for everyone, gay, straight, well, however you identify yourself, is be reconciled to your creator. Now, in a moment, we're going to do a Bible study. But before that, let's sing a song that talks about this identity that we have in Christ and what an amazing thing it is, how liberating it is. And then in a moment, I'll get you to do some talking. Something to celebrate. Okay. Tension between Christians and the LGBT movement. It's no secret there's been a lot of tension between Christians and the LGBT community. And I think that boils down to two reasons. Firstly, because this issue of identity is so central to the whole thing, you cannot say to a gay person, I love you, but I hate your sin, or anything like that. Because it's, it's entwined with their identity. Who, that's who they are. So if you're saying that you dislike what they're doing, you are disapproving of them as a person. That's one reason. But the second reason is something I want to talk about a little bit, and that's because of our self-righteousness. We have created an us-and-them mentality. Here's a BBC article about coronavirus. The title was, I'm stuck in isolation with my homophobic parents uh, in March last year. 
After the coronavirus outbreak suddenly ended, a, uh, suddenly ended a UK tour he was performing in, Sam, 23, a dancer from Birmingham, said he had no choice but to move back to his strict Christian family home. I saw the career I love disappear overnight, and now I'm stuck in isolation with homophobes. Even though Sam chose to return home, he says he is struggling because he can't be himself. My mum says homosexuality is an evil disease and that the devil is making me gay. She loudly prays every day that I'll be delivered from sin and find a wife. Here's another quote. This is um, from a lesbian and so a woman, to state the obvious. A woman, who was a lesbian, said, I can remember one occasion soon after my conversion to Christianity when I came out to an older Christian, hoping for some compassion and support. He explained in detail how gay sex was wrong because the anus was not designed to receive, only to expel, as if this was relevant to me. We're going to look at some Bible texts and just see what the right approach should be for us as we come across people from the LGBT community. So grab a Bible and open it up to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And I've just got three questions for you to discuss on your tables that are here on the, on the board. First of all, what's the tone of the verses? Secondly, what's the biggest sin here? What sins are said to be the cause of lots of other sins, including sexual impurity? And uh, thirdly, does it promote an us-and-them mentality? How does a careful reading of this passage avoid an us-and-them mentality? We don't, we don't want to say that we're the good guys and they are the bad guys, do we? That is absolutely not the Christian message. So take a look at those verses, and we'll come together in about three or four minutes. Okay, can you bring those conversations to a close? Okay, in the interest of time, I hope you've, you've probably all got the... Uh, the answers that I've got here in front of me. In the interest of time, I'll just uh, give you some thoughts rather than go around the tables again. But um, I asked, what's the tone of these verses? And uh, we had some good thoughts on this table. Uh, we're talking about them being rules. Uh, they can come across as quite harsh, quite strict, even condemning, maybe angry. That's how the, the tone of these verses can come across. But um, often we, we sort of misread them and go straight to the sins lower down the list as being the biggest sins, when in fact there's some a bit further up that are, the, that are bigger. Um, so what sins are said to be the cause of lots of other sins? Godlessness. Verse 18. This is relational. It's about us and God. There is a problem in that relationship. It says wicked, wickedness, suppressing truth by wickedness. Verse 21, it says they knew God, but didn't glorify him or give thanks. Again, relational. And it says they abandoned God and worship created things. That's relational. So you've got this big relational rift between us and God that comes first, and that trickles down into other sins. But how, uh, going on to the uh, third question, how does a careful reading avoid an us and them mentality? Well, there's a few sins in there that we've all committed. Greed, envy, gossip, boastful, disobedient to parents. But even then, the list as a whole seems particularly bad. We don't think of ourselves as that bad. But look at chapter 2, verse 1. Yeah. 
So remember that the, the chapter division wasn't there when Paul was originally writing, and it's thrown us a bit, because we read chapter one and we think, oh, okay, that's that, a big list of sins. We can go out now and tell people, you know, you fall into this big list of sins, forgetting that chapter two, verse one says, so you who are judging other people, you don't have a leg to stand on because you do the same things. If we went back to that example, now I, I, I'm sure this, this Christian family, uh, you know, in Birmingham meant well, but when, the, when this mum says that homosexuality is an evil disease and that the devil is making this guy gay and prays loudly every day that he'll be delivered, she's, she risks falling foul of chapter 2, verse 1 there, doesn't she? She is judging him without perhaps pointing a finger at herself. Now, I know that often um, when, we, uh, when a person is particularly critical of others, often they are quite critical of themselves as well. So maybe she is pointing at herself and uh, saying that she's a sinner, but there's a time to em- embrace the forgiveness that we have in Christ. I think it's worth keeping in mind that Jesus' harshest criticism was saved for a certain group of people. Who was that? Pharisees, Sadducees. It was, it was the people who thought they were good, the religious elite. And um, on a couple of occasions, Jesus does say that people's conduct has come from the devil. He says, what you're doing now has come from Satan. To whom does he say that? The Pharisees? He calls them children of the devil. Who else does he say it to? Peter, one of his own disciples. He never points the finger to other people and says, your conduct is of the devil, you're a particular sinner, apart from the self-righteous. And one of his own disciples. Okay, take a look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. Just a couple of verses. And then look at the story in John 4. That's a few more verses, but you don't need to read them all in detail. Just skim through John 4, chapters 1 to 30. The principle I'm trying to get across with this is speaking the truth in love. Sometimes we speak the truth, but forget the in love bit. So the truth is in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the truth. And that is what some of you were, it says. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Now, in that list is idol- uh, sorry, adulterers. And this is why I sent you to John 4, because a key piece of information about the woman that Jesus meets is that she was an adulterer. She'd been married five times. She's now living with someone who wasn't her husband. She was an adulterer. And yet Jesus doesn't, I mean, 1 Corinthians wasn't written then, but he didn't pull out 1 Corinthians and say, do not be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God, you filthy woman. You know, he didn't say anything like that. He treated her with gentleness. And he said, come to me and I will give you water of life. Drink freely. He's saying, I offer you an identity, a meaning. I offer you love that is so much better than what you've had up till now. So let's not be self-righteous when, we're, um, when we come across people from that community, the LGBTQ plus community. But I realize that I haven't really said very much about living alongside the movement because obviously there are a lot of things about the movement that we will struggle with as Christians. So what if your workplace asks you to wear a rainbow lanyard to affirm that you support the movement? What are your legal rights? <laughs> well, in the first instance, I'm just going to point you to other places as I finish. 
here we go, Christian Institute. Uh, this has an absolutely fantastic section on marriage and the family, where it goes through a lot of these very practical questions. What happens if you have to wear a rainbow lanyard, hoist a rainbow flag, this kind of stuff? Will you lose your job if you um, say that you don't support same-sex marriage? That kind of thing. So it's well worth going to that website to look for practical answers there. I'm going to recommend one other resource, resource, which is living out. Now, this is more about supporting gay people within the church and gay people that you come across in your day-to-day lives. This is a group of Christians, and their tagline is Christian and gay. They're committed to celibacy and singleness, which also means, in a, in a sense, even if it's not the case, they might feel that they're committing to a lifetime of loneliness. So it's worth us as a church realizing the cost that homosexual people have to make to become a Christian. It's a cost that heterosexual people don't need to make most of the time. But I appreciate not everyone is married. And, um, you know, loneliness is something that can affect us all in in marriage or not. There's also the question of falling into sin. Uh, Let's not pretend that we don't sin after we're converted. And so a homosexual person in the church may well fall into sin. That doesn't mean we wash our hands of them by any means. We support them and we love them, we care for them. And another thing that this will help us with is how to reach out to our friends in the LGBTQ plus community. Because it's actually very different for, say, a gay person to reach out to their gay friends. Because if they go into the gay bars they used to frequent, that leaves them open to temptation. It means that a lifestyle that they formerly found very appealing is right there in front of them. And it's a very difficult place to be. They actually will rely heavily on those of us who are straight to evangelize their gay friends. So let's not shy away from that task. Living Out is a great resource to help us with that. The other question I want to ask is just this. Is church family family? When it comes to supporting gay people in the church... We will need to rally around them. We'll need to support them in temptation. We'll need to support them in loneliness. Not just them, all of us. We all need support, right? But particularly, we'll need to watch out for them. And one more thought to finish. I haven't covered everything we could say about this by any means. Um, It's a, a big conversation, and loads could be said. But the most important take home message is this. We need to have a strong, positive view of who we are as people. Made in God's image, but broken. But we have the potential to be restored, and we are waiting for something better. When that is really strong in us, then that will be reflected in our relationships with those around us. And people might not be asking us, do you think homosexuality is wrong? They'll be thinking, I really like the way you see humankind as this positive thing. Um, with so much meaning. So uh, you could ask, I'm not making, asking this to make you feel bad, but when was the last time you celebrated how awesome people are with your friends and your colleagues and family? People are absolutely amazing and wonderful creatures because God created us. What a positive message. And of course, when it comes to identity, being in Christ is the only truly liberating identity and the answer to our deepest needs. That is the message that everyone needs to hear.